0: In finding the these days. of brewing that the focus remains the focal, focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittum, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And I'm so excited for today's show. It is with Zoe Rome. Zoe is the host, producer, misses everything at one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, Not only favorite running podcast, which it happens to be a athletic and sport related podcast, but just one of my favorite podcasts in general. And this woman is such a dynamo. And on top of that, she is an incredible athlete and runner. She literally is the entire package and more. I could not be more excited to get Zoe on the show. If You haven't already done so go check out the DNF podcast. It is simply remarkable. Not only is she great with words on that show, she's also wonderful with the written word as well. She's written in many places and is currently working at Trailrunner Mag. Go check all things Zoe Rome. She's just simply fantastic. So I'm not going to waste any more of your time. Let's get into it. Hello, Zoe, and welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. So glad to be here. Oh my goodness. This is an absolute privilege. I'm so excited to have you on. I, you know, I think like yourself and I'll let you speak for yourself <laughs> on this point, but I love podcasts, audiobooks, basically anything audio. Um at this point, it's just ingrained in my life after a long time of working in jobs where I was, you know, traveling all the time and now, you know, I just use it, you know, either for entertainment and or escapism. I love it so much. With that said, the podcast that you do, DNF is my favorite listening experience. So to have you on my podcast is an absolute honor, first and foremost. And I'm so excited to talk with you. Um, But I guess first things first, and I don't even know where to begin, frankly, because I want to talk about all things all at the same time. Like, I'll just layer the audio on (laughs) top of each other because all the stuff I'm so interested (laughs) in. 20 questions simultaneously. (laughs) 20 questions, and I'm going to have all the answers come out at the same time. Uh, So, But with the podcast specifically, I guess we'll start there. When did it become something that you wanted to dive into?
1: So I have always, so I come from a public radio background and I got into public radio. I mean, partially because I love public radio and nonprofit journalism, but also because I've just always loved podcasts. I think I started listening to podcasts when I was, you know, like in middle school, kind of when they first started becoming a thing. I actually hosted the podcast, the news podcast for my middle school, which was like a weekly news roundup of like here's what's going on in the cafeteria and here's when the jazz band is performing. So I've been in podcasting for a while, was groomed from a young age and um, I just always have like wanted to have my own. And like, I worked on developing some podcasts when I used to work in public radio, but they were primarily um, news centered and they weren't quite like they didn't, they weren't something that I had a lot of creative control over. So when I started working at Trail Runner, I immediately brought them the idea of a podcast um, because that's like where my passion is, and also because it's such a cool way to kind of extend the Trail Runner brand into a space that's a bit more accessible. Like listening to a podcast is that it's so easy to do. Um, You don't have to be scrolling on your phone. You don't have to be seated at your computer. It's a way that you can engage with trail running like while you're doing laundry or doing the dishes or while you're out running it's a great way to bring something that you really care about and love and kind of infuse it into these other spaces in life besides just like seated at your desk or like you know reading on the bus
0: okay man i i I thought i had a lot of questions before now i got like 25 (laughs) more um so first of all middle school podcast how would you like First of all, was anyone listening to this podcast? What devices were they listening on, <laughs> and how were you even disseminating it? Like I, like, it's like I'm just thinking like back then, like not exactly as as widespread as they are now. Like the vast majority of people don't listen to podcasts. I can only imagine what it was like for you back then. Was this just like a? And I, just, I already asked you three questions. I'm going to ask you a fourth. Was this a situation where it was like just a passion project for you, or was this actually consumed? by fellow students?
1: Yeah. So it was actually marketed marketed at parents. Um, so I was like kind of one of those precocious, like I was always kind of a loud person. Like I'm very voice forward. You know, I have kind of a low commanding voice. Um, probably one of the other reasons I made it into public radio and podcasting. Um, but you know, like I, I was always like super active in my school's drama department. And I was never like that great at necessary. like I didn't I wasn't like great at inhabiting different characters but my principal was like oh this girl's pretty loud uh that's cool <laughs> let's have her voice our podcast and so it was just like a new like a nine minute new like I was the kid at school that I was on student council and it was my job to like read the pledge of allegiance and like announcements over the intercom I have always been a person who like has this like a you know enjoys voice performance And so it kind of developed from like Zoe doing the announcements at middle school to Zoe hosting the McNair Mustangs weekly roundup, which, you know, I can't, I've, I've tried to find this on the internet because I just thought it would be so funny to revisit like what I sounded like at age like 12, 13. Um, but like just being like, all right, we're having chicken fried steak again and the jazz band is performing. Come see, um, our version of Annie (laughs) this week. Um, and I think it was just, yeah, it was just because I was like the loudest kid in school.
0: <laughs> All right, that 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 is pretty funny. So when people think about highly produced and well done podcasts, now that that genre within podcasts is is ever expanding at this point. Um, but for a long time, NPR had com- com- basically cornered the market on that sort of thing, and you know their success in that industry is well-known. And, you know, and I think of the most well-done podcast, that's exactly where my mind goes. What does a podcast team look like for that sort of endeavor?
1: That's a great question. So one of the first really big podcasts I worked on was Threshold, uh, which is produced by Montana Public Radio. Um, and we had a team, I mean, it started as just Amy Martin, who was the head producer, reporter, um she just did everything and i was um an intern and uh helped with production on that like some editorial guidance and i mean you know if you look at and that was kind of a small setup but i think we did a really great job but there were like five of us max at any given time and it started out as just three of us um but i mean if you look at like radio lab there's like if you ever listen to the credits i love listening to podcast credits because like one of the ways I like to find podcasts is being like, okay, I really love like this producer. What else are they making? Um, because everything that you hear like isn't exactly. It, there's a lot going on below the surface, and when you know what you're listening for, it becomes even more interesting. But like, you know, something like Radiolab. There's like, you know, dozens of people working on that. Even though you maybe only hear a couple primary voices, but you have tons of people doing. Editing, production, fact-checking, sound engineering, like all these really cool, complicated things that just make this thing sound really polished. Um, The thing that's a little bit different about DNF is that it is a team of exactly one person. (laughs) So finding that polish is a little more challenging.
0: That's exactly where I was going because your podcast, DNF, is... Uh, especially in the sports world and even more so specifically in the running world, whether that's, you know, I think running podcasts have their own genres, right? The the trail running, some for the pros, you know, ultras, and then, you know, one like mine, which is based uh, prominently for and about dedicated amateur runners. You have these genres with that being said, one thing that you don't find until yours was something that was highly produced and sounded and was basically story told in a way that was similar to what you'd see at the NPRs of the world. And that was for me an eye-opening experience to listen to your podcast for the first time, because it was something wholly unlike anything else I'd heard in the space. So once you got to trail runner and you decided that, Hey, I think we should branch out into this. What made you go to that level of sophistication, not only in terms of, um, interest in that sort of storytelling, um, I guess, phenomenon, but also the time and effort required to do that kind of podcast.
1: Yeah. I've always just loved sound and audio. Like I love audio production. Um, and I really wanted to push myself creatively. Like I wanted to do like what I heard in a lot of the podcasts I looked up to and never quite had the free range to execute when I was doing more news driven podcasts. Like I wanted to incorporate Music with the intent of like creating a specific emotion. I wanted to use sound effects with the idea of like, oh, instead of saying this person was anxious, how do I make the person who's listening truly feel anxious? Like, I don't want to just tell a story, I need to bring someone in. Um, And I think audio is one of the best ways to do that. It's a super immersive way to consume media like it's one of the most intimate genres of like it's the most intimate thing you can do like I'm literally like when you think about the way that sound actually works I'm my voice is literally tickling people's eardrums I'm like interacting with their physical body it's super super interesting and like I really think that that connection is what makes it work Um, And so I wanted to kind of push that creatively in my own work. Like, how do I tell really cool stories about running, but use techniques that I've been kind of developing on my own, but never really got to use when I was working in you know, the news side of public radio. And how do I, you know, incorporate music in a way that's really interesting and immersive and sound effects and kind of play with voices and interjections and like bring in like found media and mixed media and create this thing where someone is pulled into the story and they're not just a passive consumer, but they feel like they're really interacting with it.
0: That was so well said. My goodness. Um it reminds me p- part of what you said in terms of tickling people's eardrums with the audio that reminds me I think it was in Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert where she she paraphrases another person Saying that for them, so it was some 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 sort of creative endeavor, whether it was writing or, or what have you, and they talked about it. It was like um, you know creating jewelry for someone's brain or something along those lines. And it kind of harkens and when you said that. I Kind of harken back to that that quote. But um, that's neither here nor there. But with all that being said, th- what you're describing as artistically fulfilling as it is for you personally, and as enjoyable as for me to consume when you're putting together a 20 minute episode, which is around the median length that you've put out so far on DNF, how much time does it actually take to create?
1: <laughs> oh man, I'm constantly trying to beat, bring this number down, <laughs> but it takes like, I would say a, a very uh, efficient one would be 60 hours. Um, like a full work week. And I mean, it's just, it, you know, it's, it's a lot, but I I wouldn't, you know, in some ways, I wouldn't do it any other way. On the other hand, you know, I have, I'm a human with a life. And sometimes when I find myself like producing audio at 11 o'clock at night, and I would really rather be asleep, it's like, oh, man, (laughs) why are you so addicted to this thing? Um, But yeah, I mean, 60 hours, like it takes, you know, There's the pre-interview process, there's the actual interview, and then you have to go back and listen to the interview and log the tape, which is the process of like taking notes, so that then I can go and write the script, which I think sometimes takes the longest for me, um, just because you're taking bits and pieces of like, okay, do they say this better? Or can I say it better? Do they say it really emotively? Or should I paraphrase to move things along? How's my pacing? How do I build narrative tension? Because one of the things that I try to really do with my uh, storytelling is to help other people tell their stories better. Most people, um, you know, just in the way that we naturally talk about ourselves, it can be challenging to be the best like conveyor of our own experience. So how do I stay true to what they're telling me and maybe play up the tension in a way that's going to resonate with other people better that fits into whatever narrative arc I'm constructing. Um, And then, you know, writing Writing that script and then cutting and taking apart their audio, recording myself, reading the script, re recording myself, reading the script, making sure I'm getting the tone and cadence correct. And then you have to splice all that together. And I'll think about the ways that I can incorporate more interesting sound and sound effects and music. And I try a couple different things. And sometimes I'll bounce ideas off of people to see if something's working or if it sounds too cheesy. Um, And then You know, then on the back end, I spend like at least a couple hours making sure the volume of different things is all correct, which is never the like sexiest part of the job. But there's nothing worse than when you're like jogging, listening to a podcast and suddenly it's like, boom, music.
0: (laughs) I feel like your coach, David Roche, would do that to people like he would purposefully (laughs) throw in whether it's, you know, bass beats or what have you. Like, you know, you're trying to tickle people's eardrums. He's trying to pound them into some into like happy submission.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like how do I and I think there is a time where like you can use tricks like that. Like, um, if you want to like invoke an actual feeling of surprise, like yes, use sound to do that, you know, scream surprise. Um, or if you want people to like lean in and have to strain to hear you a little bit, that can provoke, you know, feelings of tension or intimacy and connection as well. So, like, you know, there are times when using volume can achieve specific results, but you know just like also in the process of recording my own voice, sometimes I'll accidentally get a little too hot on the mic if I'm getting excited about my script.
0: Well, as well-versed as you are in all things audio, and we could talk about that. We won't. This is a running podcast. We We, we won't do that. We'll subject
1: people to that.
0: (laughs) We'll have some sort of narrative arc here. Um, So beyond that, it seems like you're also equally well-versed in just the art of storytelling. Um, And that's not to say that you're not going to improve and that this is something that you've necessarily mastered wholly, but it seems like you're at a level with this that I'm certainly unfamiliar. So what in terms of getting a handle on that and becoming more masterful in that area, what have you done to bring that along? And and when did that start for you?
1: Yeah, so I actually, my undergraduate degree is in English literature. Um, I'm sure anyone who listens to DNF can tell that I have an affinity for that um and so i've always just loved studying how people tell stories i i think it's just the most amazing thing in the world how do we take this like weird mushiness that is our own existence and kind of like graph meaning and narrative onto it um my initial study was in religious literature and that kind of evolved into a study of ecological literature and so my like my The end of my undergraduate thesis ended up being on how do we use storytelling to help connect people to different ecologies and to nature and um, involve them in climate action and climate justice, essentially, and studying how other people do that and taking apart things that I had read and seeing what specific tools worked really, really well. Um, And I loved that so much that I was like, man, I don't really want to just be on the sidelines forever studying how other people do it. I went on to get a graduate degree in environmental journalism, which was like putting what I had learned in literature into practice in the real world, seeing how like, how do I use storytelling to take kind of challenging things like climate change, um, you know, these big ideas, how do I wrestle with them in a way that makes it easy, relatable, and like really resonate with people. How do I use powerful storytelling to connect people with things that are kind of hard to see and understand because they don't really fit into the daily patterns of our lives? And to me, that's what storytelling is, is taking really big things and making it feel super personal and universal at the same time.
0: Now, when you're trying to produce something, um, whether you're, you, you're also – A prodigious writer as well. This is not just about podcasts. So from a storytelling perspective, there's a couple different mediums that we're talking about. With that said, considering what you produce content for, both Trailburner magazine and and various other um, publications that you work with, what is kind of like the base level understanding of a topic that you go into like some of your work with? Uh, So I guess more specifically, all right, say say with the podcast, you're talking about, just look at the first episode. You know, you're talking about Cat Bradley. Right. So when you're introducing her and you're trying to spend trying to do this in like 20 minutes, what she's able to do as an athlete and as a person and so on and so forth. How much how much intro do you feel like you have to put into who she is and what she's doing, as opposed to a a different jumping off point where certain things are already assumed and known?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, especially coming from a background kind of more in hard journalism, it's assuming that Nothing is known, essentially. Um, and, you know, even in kind of like the niche world of trail running or ultra running, like, you know, it's a pretty well-informed audience. But it's always been something, something that I've always cared about is how do we kind of grow the tent? How do we bring more people into the fold? And I think being really intentional in our storytelling and not assuming knowledge on the part of the listener or reader is huge. Um, you know, I also love doing research. Like anytime I can bring, you know, additional research and outside information into whatever I'm writing for trail runner, whether it's an opinion piece or like a, you know, here's the best type of time of day to train, like no matter what it is, I think, you know, the more... The less you assume on the part of yourself and the reader and the more that you're able to bring in, not only does that kind of, like, honor your work and intelligence, but it really engages the reader because it lights up their, like, ability to engage with intelligent material as well. And if there's something in there that they already know, then they'll just connect with it even more.
0: So your podcast, DNF, is about failure. and. It's presented in a lot of different forms and very individualistic, uh, depending on who you're talking to and about during each episode. What about failure as a topic drew you in and made it something that you wanted to pursue in not just this format, but really, in, you know, as you mentioned, you're spending a lot of time on this. What about that topic really brought you in? wholeheartedly um not just in terms of the episode specifically but wrapping your whole head around that concept and what it can mean to different people
1: man i think it's partially because failure is such an expansive idea and i think once you start to pay attention to it you start to see it everywhere um it feels like inhabiting this like different side of the matrix where you're like whoa everything i'm seeing is actually just failure reframed you know um every success, oh, it's actually just 10 different failures and one finally worked out. Um, And I think that, you know, that's kind of one interesting side of it, but it also just narratively (laughs) is a lot more interesting than like stories where it's like, here's someone who totally, and like, and I feel like that's kind of a false narrative as well. Like there's no one who has only ever succeeded, but I think reframing people's stories so that it focuses on the part of the story that we kind of tend to overlook a little bit culturally and that we tend to feel a little bit uncomfortable about and really embracing that and leaning into it and trying to pick it apart makes it so interesting. Cause it's like examining this thing that we live with every day, but once you put it under a microscope, I mean, it's like when you put, you know, Anything under a microscope when it feels like you're seeing it for the first time, even if it's like some gross little bug or something, when you get to see it up close, it becomes this like beautiful kaleidoscope of all these things and ideas that you live with every day, but have never thought about as deeply as maybe you could have. And when you start to see it from that perspective, you get a lot more comfortable with the idea of living with it um, and of wrestling with it and of understanding how it makes you who you are.
0: Right. I mean, it, failure absolutely is an interesting topic. It's not necessarily, if framed a certain way, a motivating one or an inspirational right. one or yeah. one that people necessarily want to um, invest their time into hearing about. Right. Because for so many people, you know, whether it's a podcast or any other form of media, there is this feeling of, OK, I want to be entertained. Right. Or even especially now. Right. Yeah. In mid-pandemic, and pandemic wherever we are in that timeline, this feeling of, all right. I am dealing with enough serious stuff right now <laughs> when I want to watch something, listen to something, read something, I want it to provide some sort of entertainment. Like escape. Right. Escapism. Things like that. Exactly, yeah. Right. So you, you, that feeling with that said, I feel like your show provides that, even though it's talking about something that at least for the person uh, who they're reflecting on whatever happened in their life, it, you know, for them, it was this very serious thing that was hard, and yet it's presented in a way that's very consumable. What's that process for you like in a way um, that you are able to do that, but at the same time, keep the authenticity of the experience?
1: Yeah. And I think for me, it comes, like you said, kind of managing that expectation around like escapism. Um, and for me, like, I, you know, I think. Creative things that have really impacted me are this have this kind of dual purpose. They allowed me they allow me to get outside of myself and experience something else and kind of flex my empathy muscle. But once I'm done and well, not really done engaging with it, but once like maybe I'm done with a podcast or a book or looking at a painting or a photograph it gives me a new lens to look at my own life and a new way to engage with whatever I'm wrestling with in the moment. So it's not just this thing that I use to like escape what I'm going through. It's a thing that can transport me out of my immediate experience, but then allows me to return to my actual life and gives me new tools to understand what I'm thinking and feeling in a new way because I've learned from someone else and because I've you know, been empathetic. And because I've really engaged with their narrative and their narrative tool set, it allows me to revisit who I am and learn about myself. And I feel like that is kind of always what I'm striving for is like, how do I take, you know, Cat Bradley or David Roche or Brendan Leonard's really specific narrative and kind of tease it apart so that people can look at it and understand like, oh, like, I've also had these struggles in my career. I've also battled with addiction. Like, these are things that we can all understand and relate to. And in being able to work through that problem through someone else's experience, we can return to our own with new knowledge and a new skill set, and apply that in our own lives. And I think that finding that balance between what is super intimate and personal and what feels expansive and universal is what has always fired me up about creative work. And I think it's finding those right moments in the podcast to highlight details like when Kat Bradley, like I called her episode "Mr. Teacher," because she had this moment when, like that was her nickname, because she's so identified with her career in that moment that her nickname was based around it, and it was very painful for her to revisit that nickname. And I think we've all had. Not that specific experience, but similar ones. So, like, how do I find those really evocative details and take them apart so that anyone can identify with them and understand in their own lives? Like, oh, I've felt that same way. Like, I've had that experience of over identifying with my career or like having to revisit my identity that I've formed and just always treading that line between here's something really specific that happened in another person's life. And here's how that can allow me to live in a space where I'm more accepting of myself and my own failure as well.
0: And how is it for you treading that line when you know the person fairly well? Because (laughs) let's use Amelia Boone as an example. She was on the show. Her episode was fantastic, as they all are. And she's talking about very hard things. Not only that, you know her well. So what's that like, trying to tell that story in a way where... um, I'm no, Now, I'm just assuming here, please correct me if I'm wrong, where you want to make sure that you do justice to the story and try to do it in a dispassionate way, despite the passions you may feel.
1: Yeah, actually, this is, I think, one of the fun things about that episode is Amelia was when I first concepted this podcast, she was one of the first people I wanted to talk to because she's such a great writer um, and is so vulnerable about hard things in her life. And so I initially approached her about the podcast like a year ago um, before we really knew each other. And she was like, you know, I'm not really in a space where that feels like something I'm super excited about. And I was like, that's awesome. Great. Um, Over the course of the year, we, we got to be friends just through um, running together. And, you know, I think it, as a journalist, you always want to like, and I think DNF is an interesting space because it's not just like straightforward journalism where I'm like reporting on people who've experienced things. Like it's highly emotive. It's highly subjective. I'm aware of that. And you spend so much time working on an episode. Like, I mean, huge apologies to any of my subjects, but I spend like 15 hours listening to your voice, which, oh gosh, that's, you know, challenging right there as it is. And you really like, start to build a connection and identification with that voice. And it's really hard to remain impartial or objective in that way. And I think embracing those things, like when I'm listening to hard parts of Amelia's story, really examining the emotions I come up with, like, man, this is someone I know who has struggled with a thing. You know, how do I... Represent it in a way in my writing or in my storytelling that ref- like that can allow other people to experience that as well. So like instead of shying away from those feelings of like connection and identification, how do I play those up in a way that anyone can feel them? Like, how do I investigate my own feelings around this person and their struggles and use that as like my storytelling superpower to bring other people into that empathetic experience? And it is hard, like, you know, even like, man, I, you know, I don't know Brendan Leonard particularly well, but after producing and listening to his podcast, I'm just like, man, I feel like we, we could talk forever. Um, And like, it, it's hard to hear anyone tell those stories. And like, it's hard to hear anyone get that vulnerable about, you know, whether it's an eating disorder, or alcohol addiction, losing a job, quitting a job, you know, hearing Katie Arnold's episode about grief, like that was one that I, I've never lost um, a parent. And I just like when I was working on that, I had like all these feelings come up around my own fear of loss. Um, and instead of shying away from that, I really wanted to investigate that in a way that made the storytelling even stronger. Um, but it's you know it's it's this weird thing where like any time you spend that amount of hours listening to someone's voice figuring out a strong way to tell their story you you do kind of just develop this strange connection <laughs> to that um and i think just leaning into it is important and like you know almost developing a relationship with amelia's story outside of my relationship with amelia um and i think another thing about the, the whole project of dnf is that Every story that I've told so far, like, I relate to in a really strong way. Um, and so, like, how do I use that as a strength and not let it become, like, too personal or too about me? And always treading that line between, like, how do I talk about, you know, a sense of insecurity in my career without making it about me? How do I talk about, you know, maybe being worried, you know, if it's, you know, my fear of loss, my, my own issues around, like, recovery things like that and make it feel like bring other people into that experience of really identifying with another one's story.
0: Yeah, when someone listens to your podcast, they don't get the sense of who Zoe Rome is, right? You're not you're not a player in the podcast necessarily. You know, you are a wonderful host and you produce a great show. Unlike say someone listens to this podcast over, if they over it doesn't do enough episodes they know a decent bit about me right the little things yeah. get interjected here and there um sometimes I'm, there's the oversharing that happens um with that said you are an absolutely fantastic athlete in your own right and that is something that if people only know you through the podcast or only know you a little bit they might not be aware of you are an exceptional runner and it's amazing to just even that aspect of your life and how it's compartmentalized from what you're doing at Shrove Magazine where you're telling other people's stories and that's completely isolated from what you're doing. So as a runner for you, let's, <laughs> let's just talk about this because this could be like its own separate podcast for me. I'm sitting here like, how, when do I get into the running piece? Because I'm so excited to talk about this other stuff as well. Okay, so <laughs> this summer, you've done some amazing things. Um, most recently... FKT up Capitol peak. I mean, this, I, I remember, so I follow David Roche. He's now a friend of mine. Um, and so he's, he's your, he's your coach. And anyone who listens to this show has heard, probably heard episodes I've done with him. And he wrote about your experience for trail runner. And the article went out on August 24th and the picture, the headlining picture, (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it right now as we're talking and I'm sweating, looking at this picture. And, When you think about doing unbelievably hard, challenging, monstrous things within athletics and using your body, when did that desire to do that sort of thing start to percolate within you? Because as of now, I look at this, I'm like, I can't even imagine getting to this point from a motivation standpoint to want to do something like this. And I don't even know how something like that would even germinate inside of me. So where where did it start for you?
1: Oh, I mean, you know, I think with all, well, first of all, thank you. All of those things were so kind. Um, Capital Peak has always been something I've loved. I climbed it for the first time just hiking when I was like 19 or 20 and just thought it was like, it was so scary. Like I lost so much sleep. I was so nervous. It was like kind of my first class four thing and you had to bring a helmet which just felt like so badass and epic to me and i was like super into 14ers at the time and i was like i just can't wait to like test myself on this epic mountain and i climbed it with some friends and it was just like the best day of my life like it was just like a 15 hour epic adventure and we like camped out and it just felt like this amazing just odyssey you know um i revisited it a few years later and like actually ran it with a couple friends and we like we joked that it was run and like it was so fun to figure out how to fit our helmets onto our running packs and like we ate pizza on the top and it was just like a really joyful experience and then I've hiked it with friends again so I've done it several times like done it to the point where like you know I went from one time like the first before the first time I ever did it I was like losing sleep like sweating like oh my god this mountain is so scary to being like man this mountain is just so cool And I really treasure like every second that I get to spend touching it. Um, I want to touch it way more. And I, you know, I had just always thought like, I just really have very strong, warm feelings towards this peak. And I feel like a great manifestation of that would be trying to see how best I can do it. You know, like, my expression of love for this area would be, can I do it a little bit faster? Can I pick a really aesthetic line? Can I do it well? Um, like as an outgrowth of how much time I love spending up there. And if like an FKT came out of it, like awesome, that's so great. Um, a lot of strong women have done that peak in pretty, you know, good times. And I decided I just wanted to spend my birthday doing it as fast slash well as I could. I tried to move my conception of my goals away from being fast and speedy to doing it well, like moving well, particularly because some of the terrain is challenging. And my mindset just wasn't challenging.
0: Challenging is the word you're (laughs) going to use. (laughs) Me trying to get through dinner with my kids is challenging. This looks (laughs) death defying to me when I look at these pictures.
1: It's, it, it, it's one of those things that like the more time you spend in that terrain, it it never loses the cons, the consequences, right? Like, it doesn't get less steep, the exposure doesn't diminish, but your ability to understand how to best work with those things changes. And so, I mean, when I was up there, you know, in the challenging consequential terrain, like my goal was always centered towards like, how do I just feel like I'm moving? Well, if that means I'm butt scooting, awesome, I'm moving. Well, if that means I'm like, you know, just crawling over scree, awesome, moving well. Um, And just, you know, kind of Trying to not fixate on speed, but like, how do I interact with this terrain in a way that feels good, I guess? Um, and I just, man, I like, I, you know, I used to trad climb back a while ago, and I kind of have moved away from that to do more running. And so it felt really great to loop in a skill set that I'd kind of w- moved away from when I started focusing more on running and, you know, run to nearing something. Like, I was never a great climber, and thankfully, Capital is very rewarding for people that are just okay climbers. Um, so it really like, it felt like a celebration of all the things I'm super okay at.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I'm trying to like paint a picture here. Um, I'm not a very good artist, so it's not going to come out very good. But um, for those people who maybe have seen some of Killian Jornet's um, GoPro videos of him on literally on the edge of mountains and doing wild and crazy stuff however you felt while watching that is how I'm feeling looking at this picture. Um, And when you think, I guess they're just broadly speaking, I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong. You know, this, this field far better than I do. It seems like in this, this season, we're seeing many more FKT attempts. Um, I don't know if that's true or if they're just being more widely heard because there's just, there's not a lot of, there's just not a lot of activity going on in the sports world so maybe it's just it's just getting to, getting to people's ears and eyes um more readily than before but it's, it feels like this is happening more and more has that been your experience
1: yeah i mean quantifiably so we actually did a story on this for trail runner and we interviewed the guys from the fkt website and it's like i think they said there's like a 300 percent increase like it you know it went from being like they would have five or so you know, FKTs in a given week to hundreds, which is so amazing and cool and exciting. Like, I'm a competitive person, but I also really love being competitive outside of a racing context. So, like, being com- pe- like, there's no other context in which I would get to kind of try to gun it on capital. Like, there's never going to be a race that goes over the most difficult 14er. Um, but getting to, like, add that, like, competitive aspect to really interesting terrain and terrain that feels... And like, I mean, you know, just watching other people like set FKTs on Nolans, which is such a cool, which um, is the 14, 14ers in the um, collegiate peaks near Leadville, like these things that could just never be races or competitions in the more traditional sense and watching people apply their full selves to them is just the most amazing thing in the sport. Like it just feels, <laughs> it's it's even more exciting than a race season for me because people get to pick an adventure that really speaks to them and inspires them outside of just like, oh, I'm racing Western States or Leadville or whatever, whatever it is, because, you know, those races are kind of predetermined in a way. And when you get to watch an athlete, like apply their full creative selves to a really inspiring route, or like a peak, like that is just the most exciting thing. Um, I think, you know, particularly, following strong women this year um you know a a new record was just set on the appalachian trail like two days ago there's been one on the pct the jmt wonderland Trail. like it's just so like it's it's the most exciting thing that's ever happened in the sport and i'm so in love with it i hope that even when races come back this frees a lot of athletes up to think about what actually inspires them and if they want to maybe connect with their competitive selves outside of a traditional race environment
0: now, do you think you get the most out of yourself in one of these solo or small group ventures, or if, say, you're you know you're racing Leadville with you know 400 of your closest friends? which do you think brings out the most in you?
1: Um, honestly, I've really now that I've done two FKTs, I've really enjoyed the mental headspace there because something, and this is something I want to like really improve on in myself, is I struggle to not compare myself to others in the moment. And that makes me loosen my competitive grip a moment. But like when it's just me running capital and I'm just like, this is awesome. I'm scrambling or like, this is cool. I'm descending a thing and I'm just going as fast as I can. And there's no other real, real, like, I mean, like sure you have other previous people's times, but I feel so engaged when it's just me. Like I feel like being forced to just, you know, be self-sufficient and self-supported and like manage myself emotionally puts me in a really cool competitive headspace that I'm actually starting to value potentially a bit more than racing um just because I you know it's just kind of like I get so like packet pickup is very challenge like oh man it's just like this like you have to go to this like pageant of everyone trying to look their most athletic and trail runnery and I always feel like I show up in like overalls and messy hair and i'm like oh my god what am i doing here i don't belong but when you're doing your own fkt you're like hell yeah i belong like i made this up like the only reason i'm here is me and that i think is a really cool space that i've i've been embracing a lot more
0: yeah and it's tangentially comparable to that what an awful phrase that was (laughs) It's it's pretty comparable uh, to what a lot of people say who are listening to this show are going through in terms of their experiences with virtual races. Now they're not. This is not necessarily an apples to apples comparison. Lord knows, um, but it's the same situation where you folks who, in lieu of you know not being able to do a traditional race, they're trying to find competitive outlets and also seeing what they can get out of themselves. What's the what's the what kind of peak performances can they esteem to get to? And with that in mind, for folks who are doing more of the virtual race scene as opposed to the FKT scene, which is the vast majority of people who would listen to this show, what are some experiences or, or I don't want to say tips, but what are some things that you would share with folks who are engaging with a virtual race for the first time or are still fairly new to it and they're trying to make the most of their experience but still not quite sure in terms of they don't know what they don't know and they don't know how to necessarily make the most of that experience in a way that is not only them performing at their best but just like you described enjoying the experience in of itself.
1: Yeah. Well, I think virtual races come kind of similarly to FKTs. Like you get to be your own race director. So think about the things that you really love and value about competition. For me, it's finding cool, inspiring routes, um, or routes that I have like a strong emotional connection to. So instead of just being like, okay, I'm going to, you know, run, whatever bike path to get the miles that I need to get. Like actually think of something that inspires you or maybe scares you and intimidates you and really embrace that. Uh, Think about what will make it fun for you. Like set up an awesome aid station for yourself. Like really take creative, like think of yourself not just as like a race director, but the creative director of your own experience. How are you going to make this fun? How are you going to celebrate what you love about competition Um, in, you know, whatever way that may, be, but like really own that you get to be the boss of your own experience and totally find a way to make it yours. Right. Cause like one of the, you know, things about races that's you don't, you don't get to dictate that race experience typically. Like when I show up for a race, I'm not running the show. If I was going to do a virtual race or an FKT, I get to decide when I start, what I eat, where my aid is, like who gets to watch and like really embracing all of those things and making it a celebration of all the things I love has been such a fun and engaging way to embrace my competitive side in a time when racing is less accessible. And I hope that people doing virtual races can do that too. And maybe like, take it seriously, but have fun with that, you know, like, just because it's virtual doesn't mean you can't like really put your whole self into it. And putting your whole self into it isn't just athletically, but like, how do you get to, you know, really express yourself when you're designing the route and like adding invert and like, you know, managing crew or whatever that looks like for you, but like embrace both sides of yourself, like the really badass athlete and then the badass creative logistical person as well.
0: How did you manage in your two FKTs this summer? How did you manage your relationship with time?
1: Hmm. Y- you know, that's. It was kind of so with both FKTs, I definitely hit a there's always this moment of doubt. (laughs) Um, I would say it happens like three quarters of the way through, like two thirds of the way to three quarters of the way through, where maybe you get a little bonky and my brain starts to be like, are we where we want to be? Are we doing it? Um, And I think that, you know, I tried to not focus too much on like the time I needed to beat and tried to always frame it around this is you doing your best potentially that means you beating the fastest time uh potentially it doesn't but if it doesn't then like beating yourself up about that is not going to make you run faster the only thing that will make me perform better is saying like you're performing so great continue to perform at this level um and trying to like in practice positive self talk um and like you know i think it was different for my attempt on capital as compared to my buffalo river trail fkt because on capital there was like a several hour chunk where I really tried to disengage from being a little too stressed about time because there's consequential terrain. When I was running the Buffalo river trail, there's no, like no fall terrain. (laughs) Um, There were wild boars, which was an exciting component that I hadn't been anticipating. Hey, um, (laughs) that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, Exactly. I was like, Whoa, that's a shot of adrenaline. (laughs) Um, Didn't think they actually had those. Uh, But you know, just like not, I guess not obsessing about time as much the way, I mean, the kind of mindset that I work well in that I always try to jam in is being like my concept of time being like I'm going to eat every 20 to 30 minutes and um, enjoy listening to music and just like being with myself. Like if I end up going over the time, like, OK, you know, I didn't get the FKT, but I got to spend a little extra time with myself, which is pretty cool, too. Um, but not I guess like not obsessing too, too much.
0: Now, how has how has your training Evolved in terms of doing stuff daily, weekly, and monthly um, that allows you to, you know, basically prepares you to do like what you did with these FKTs. But you know, obviously, when you're, you're you're climbing capital and you've you've had done it before, but you're not exactly able to replicate that in training, right? Right. And for for a lot of people, you know, say someone's going through. Their first marathon. And for some people that I know, some even some someone that I'm coaching now, their first marathon is gonna be a virtual marathon. And they're struggling with that. So like, I've never done 26.2 miles and I'm gonna be out there all by myself. You know, they'll have people supporting them, but you you know what I mean. And with that, you know, you've now experienced a lot of things that you couldn't necessarily replicate in training, and you had to then, you know, then you went out and did it. So what's been your relationship with that experience of um Understanding what is necessary in training to go out and pitch and put your best foot forward, and also having the confidence needed to do just that.
1: Yeah, I think what you're saying it like it really depends on how you can build your own confidence. Um, I mean, my first ever marathon was like a self-supported. I just ran from one town to another. Um, And I think that that was kind of something that really ignited my passion for like self-supported, silly distance adventures. Um, So like embrace what you're going to learn from the fact that like your marathon experience is going to be different than a lot of people's. What's been helpful for me in terms of training for these adventures, like when I went to go do that FKT on the Buffalo River Trail in Arkansas, when I was training in Colorado, I was still training in snow and hadn't been on trail like at all. So I was kind of nervous about how a bunch of road training was going to transfer to some very technical Southeastern training. And it was going to be hot because Arkansas in May is very different than Colorado in the mountains in May. Um, But instead of being too focused on the specifics, I tried to really embrace the fact that like, I've absolutely nailed my like, I can eat like a boss, I can, you know, I can just enjoy kind of locking into that long distance mentality. Like a boss, I've got a killer playlist and I'm just ready to be out there for a few hours and not getting too hung up on the specifics, like really embracing the broad things that I'm good at. um, Instead of being too like, okay, I need to absolutely train for this terrain or I need to train for this thing. Like I didn't do any scrambling before I went out and did, or I did a little bit of scrambling before I did capital. I ran... A lot of 14ers, but none that were a particularly good analog for capital. I think for me, just reinforcing the idea that, like, I am strong, I am confident, I can do hard things, even though those hard things are going to be pretty different. Um, You know, even going into capital, I had actually been coming off of an injury and I, you know, my training had been so far from perfect. But I think mentally being like, oh my gosh, I just worked through an injury that was like very scary and challenging for me you know what's harder than that like capital's not harder than like mentally how challenging it was to like go through kind of my first bigger running injury so like what can't i do um and just embracing like those broader like avenues of confidence like i'm a great runner i can go do this thing and not overly fixating on the specifics of whatever whatever it is like if you're a strong confident person and a good runner like you know that can go a really long way and for me, I've never done well when I overly fixate on the specifics of any one thing. That's never like where my best performances come from. My best performances always come from me showing up and being like, awesome, uh, let's see wh- what this is like.
0: <laughs> All right, last question. Your coach is big on the big, hairy, audacious, long-term goal, thinking five years out, always taking that long-term approach. What does that look like for you?
1: Man, um, Running the Leadville 100 has always been my dream. I attempted to run it two years ago and DNF'd, which partially inspired my fixation and fascination and enthusiasm for failure. And I was supposed to run it again this summer, and that didn't happen because of COVID. Um, so it's kind of become this really awesome like goal that keeps... Uh, popping up in really fun and unex- un- un- unanticipated ways in my life where it kind of keeps getting like put further and further down the road in a way that is sometimes very annoying and challenging, but also has opened up a lot of space for personal growth and for working on detaching from arbitrary goals. Um, but I love running in Leadville. I have always wanted to run 100 miles. I ran 86% of that race two years ago, and I'm super excited to see what that last 14% looks like.
0: That's some easy math right there. I like that.
1: (laughs) That's the nice thing about hundreds, huh?
0: (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, There's a lot of places where people can find you. In addition, one thing that we didn't mention in this show is that you are also a coach. You have your own running service. Um, So where can people learn more about you, your coaching, trail runner, your podcast, all the things?
1: Yeah. Um, so for trail runner, we are at trailrunnermag.com, mag.com, um, on Instagram as trail runner mag for microcosm coaching. We, you can find us at microcosm coaching.com. Um, and if you, if you go into whatever podcast app that you like to use, wherever you're listening to this and just type in DNF, you'll either get my podcast or another German podcast that I don't know what it is, but that comes up as well. Not sure why. Uh, Got to work on our SEO, I guess, or some of our RSS sorting. Um, but congrats to that German podcast. You have, you've done great work um, <laughs> piggybacking <laughs> on DNF, uh, whatever that means in German. And yeah.
0: There you go. Zoe, thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much, Matt.
0: Zoe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, such a great episode. I loved talking to Zoe. This was so much fun. I really appreciate you coming on. Also, big ups to Prevenex at, as always, goodness gracious. They support every single show. Go support them if you love the show. Forget about leaving a rating and review for the podcast. Go to prevenex.com and use code RUNNER15 today to go save on multivitamins, joint health plus, probiotics, kids vitamins, the whole, they have everything. They just have everything. And it's so high quality. I just trust them completely. So if you're looking for supplements of any kind, you should trust them as well. Thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media thank you to meta p for the music his song righteous path featuring rex mayhem and chip Foo, is produced by symphonic bang yeah enterprising in my surroundings i'm finding the quietest States these days, this representation of song brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. I'm trying to show this industry.